0: So you are now listening to Vocal Minds with Sophia. And today my guest is Maurice Sullivan, a Buddhist monk from America. Hi, how are you?
1: Hi there. How are you?
0: I'm good. Good.
1: So
0: is this how we greet people?
1: Yes. So in Japanese, this is called Uh, Gosho. The Indian word is anjali. It's just, it's a greeting.
0: Nice. Yeah. So how are you doing? How was your weekend? I don't know if you watched sports. Did you manage to catch the Super Bowl yesterday?
1: I did not watch the Super Bowl. Uh, I'll, I'll probably watch the recording of the halftime, <laughs> but I didn't watch the game. I, I did watch a little bit of the Winter Olympics, but I have services on Sunday mornings and I had a thing at, at the university on Saturday. And so I, it was a pretty busy weekend for me.
0: Wow. So Morris, let's go right to the beginning. What is your spiritual upbringing? What was you? You were born in America, I believe, right?
1: Yeah, I was I grew up in Texas. Wow. Uh, yeah. I know. Um, and so I, my my family was, you know, Protestant Christian. Everybody I knew was Protestant Christian. Um, but uh, I, uh, you know, the. When I was eight years old, the Beatles came to America. And uh, were your I, family
0: quite religious, like, or really religious? I mean, because when you think of the South, as someone yeah. who's not from America, I think of hardcore Christian.
1: Yeah. So I was surrounded by a fair amount of that. So at the time, <laughs> uh, a lot of what you think of as hardcore Christian didn't really quite exist yet. The roots were. We're we're, we're taking uh, shape. But um, Christianity generally was fairly moderate, as as I remember it. Uh, My parents went to church. We went to church every Sunday. My grandparents were quite devout. My parents were more institutional Christian, I guess. Um, But, um, you know, a lot of the things that we see today from this sort of... uh, sort of muscular Christianity that that we have here, Uh, didn't quite exist yet. Um, But, you know, in this country, pretty much, I mean, Christianity was most people, uh, you know, there were some other things. But when I was about um, 13 or 14, I guess, you know, the, the civil rights movement had gained a lot of steam in this country. The anti-war movement was going strong, and the uh, the church, as I found it, uh, seemed to think war was a good idea and equal rights was a bad idea. And, and I I didn't feel like that really had you know anything to do with what with what the religion as I understood it taught. And um, so there was a there was a morning when my family had gone to visit my grandparents and we'd gone to church together. And by the way, so I, I do not say this in order to, to disparage Christianity. I know there mm-hmm. were a lot of people who were faithful, devout Christians who were involved with the civil rights movement. I mean, Martin Luther King was Baptist preacher. You know, there were a lot of faithful people who were in the anti-war movement, but this is what I encountered. Uh, but after church, we, at my grandparents, we were sitting down to dinner and my grandmother talked about how this uh, uh, a black family had gone to the church. And my grandfather, and, who was a deacon in the church, and the other deacons had gone to them to tell them where the black church was. And so and I said, you know, <laughs> being being me, uh, you know, early teens um, that I that didn't sound very Christian to me. And so I was told that my opinion was not welcome and that I should take my plate and go in another room. Um, uh, and so on my way home from church, I told my parents or on my way home back home from my grandparents, I told my parents I wouldn't go into church anymore. Um, and to their cre- we
0: receive that
1: they, they understood, okay. you know, to their credit. I mean, they, they got it. And, um, My parents were not super well educated or anything, but they were both very bright people and and fairly broad minded in a lot of ways. And they just said, "Okay, you know, but I had been interested in religion for a very long time. I mean, since I was a little kid and um, I didn't stop believing in anything. I just felt like what I saw from organized religion was very hypocritical. So. So I started looking into other religions. And um, Eastern religion was a big thing in the West at that point. You know, the the Beatles had gone to India to learn how to meditate. And, you know, I was a, I was a fan. So I, I wanted to be a musician when I grew up. So I figured I should learn how to meditate and that kind of thing. And so that, <laughs> yeah. So that interest really led me to... You know, there there were there were no meditation teachers in Lubbock, Texas, which is where I lived. Wow. at least not available to me. But there were books, you know, there were books starting to come out, magazine articles and stuff. So so I explored and, and whenever I encountered something having to do with Buddhism, it just resonated with me. So um, I didn't formally study Buddhism until the 1980s because there wasn't any place to do it. By then I was living in Orlando and um you know, there wasn't much here, you know, in the way of Buddhism for English speaking people either, but eventually it developed. And so, um, you know, long story short, I ended up uh, these days. I lead I lead one Buddhist community in the where I live, which is near Daytona Beach. I speak regularly at a Vietnamese monastery down by the Space Coast. Um, I'm a university chaplain uh, and so I identify as Buddhist, but chaplains pretty much are non-denominational. You know, I'm I'm available for anyone who comes in and needs, and needs to talk to a chaplain.
0: So when you're a teenager and you've had a Christian upbringing, you know you reach that moment, and I added myself where you feel like the world is much bigger than what you have been taught, right? So I was raised Orthodox myself, which is Christian as well, and it's like a lot of you know you you hit this age where i think it's like between i think it's like 14 15 where you start realizing you know what like there are other religions in the world so if we are the creator then how how are these other people existing you know um and so during when i was a teenager there was like in so i would be online like googling every single religion i that's what i did i don't know and that's what I want to hear from you. It's like so. What, when I was like, okay, so I need to choose a religion because you can't exist without having a religion. So, so when I was in college, they would have every single religion. Like they would come come up to you and try pitch their religion to you. So it would like the Christian group would come over and be like, "Yo, join Christianity," and the Islamic group would be like join us and hindus and buddhism and so i went and pretty much did research into every single religion and myself like you said uh i found that buddhism resonated with me because at the time i didn't feel like i would have to sacrifice a lot to follow it you know um so during your teenage years what are like some of the the methods that you did to research especially as you said you're from texas there's like literally nothing about Buddhism, I presume even like Hinduism, any Eastern religions pretty much, right? In, yeah. in Texas, you know, so how did you, how did you take my, did you go to libraries and get books? How did, how did that start?
1: Yeah, you know, I went to libraries and there were some books, there were some people who had, um, you know, vis- visited Japan <laughs> in the post-war era, you know, there were people who were, who uh, encountered Zen. In mm. Japan, And there were Japanese people coming over here. And so there were some books coming out about Japanese Zen. Um, there was a lot about yoga. In fact, one of my, one of my entrees to meditation, you know, is at the checkout line in the, at the supermarket. And there was this little book on the, you know, right there on, on yoga. And so I got that, you know, and, and it said, here's how you meditate. And I don't remember what technique it gave, but you know, it was that sort of thing. Um and i read i mean in libraries there were books on comparative religion generally not real good ones you know mostly written from a very much western sort of colonialist perspective but you know there were some scholars out there and then by the time i was in high school you know there were there were some some of the books that made a big impact in the west on especially on zen so my my initial interest I'd say was, was in Zen because there was a lot written about Zen. And, um, and I'm a Zen monk now. So, you know, I, I went through some other traditions to get there, but kind of came back full circle.
0: For those who don't know what Zen means or what being a Zen monk means, what, what does that mean?
1: Well, Zen is one of the schools of Buddhism. It's a, there uh, you know, Buddhism was founded in northern India and then it spread. It went along the Silk Roads up into, you know, into China and over to Japan and Thailand and all of that kind of stuff. And even into the, uh, you know, the the Muslim world and, and that kind of stuff. And so as it encountered other cultures, it evolved. And so uh, the first there was a big split between the original teachings of the Buddha and what happened when Buddhism encountered Chinese culture and teachings of Taoism and Confucianism and so on and sort of expanded to become more inclusive, you know, uh, some of the original teachings, you, in order to become really liberated, you'd have to be a monk, you know, it was not so much for householders. And then there was this, this greater vehicle, you know, we need a, we need a big enough car for everybody to get into. And so the Mahayana, which means great vehicle, was born. And Zen is a is a, a subset of that, and it emphasizes sitting meditation. Basically, that's the primary practice. That Zen. The word Zen uh, is a is the Japanese form of a word Jhana, which is a, a an Indian word that means basically meditative absorption. And so, it's, it's really using that sort of mind training, training the mind. To be free from attachments in order to be spiritually liberated.
0: So, do you convert to Buddhism? I know it's known as the way of life, but also some people say it's a religion, right? So, you were raised Christian. I guess you started to drift away from Christianity. Then you reached a place where you weren't really following any religion, from my understanding, right? Yeah. And then, and then you found Buddhism. Do you? Is there a, like a a ceremony? if you call
1: it yeah there is so the first thing yeah, is that,
0: that's what Christians
1: yeah. are. We, we call it going for refuge okay okay so if you're a christian you know there might be this moment where you're you're saved yeah right so again. so we're not saved we go we go for refuge we said we find a we find a safe place and so that's the ceremony and basically you say okay i'm on this path and there's there's some ceremonial words that you say and the, you know the teacher says and you say them after him and then you take uh, precepts which are so this is one of the things that really appealed to me about Buddhism when I encountered it. you know in Christianity there's the Ten Commandments you got to do this, thou shalt do this. In Buddhism, we take responsibility for our moral lives and we say, well I, I vow to refrain from doing these certain things or I vow to do certain things. And so you take vows to refrain from killing and stealing and engaging in harmful speech and harmful sexual activity and, and using intoxicants to the point where you forget about the other four things that you vowed not to do. And so that's, you know, that's the formal process of becoming Buddhist. You don't have to do that. There's a lot of another thing that's unique about Buddhism is that you can be a Christian and practice Buddhism. You can be Jewish and practice Buddhism. It's, you know, because it's a path of practice, not a path of belief, you know, you can do both. And so there are, um, cases where, for example, there's, there's a a Jesuit priest who's also a Zen master, um, a lot of a lot of the people who uh, follow you, I'm sure, will have heard of Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Vietnamese monk who met a couple of uh, very well known at the time uh, Christian theologians, and also became a Christian. You know, identified as Christian and uh, and wrote books on on the similarities, the common ground between the two. So the religion is an interesting word there you would think okay we, we i know what a religion is but if you look and see the evolution of the word over time it's really changed quite a bit so uh, uh, you know uh, if you look at a dictionary from the 1970s it'll probably say religion is the worship of god
0: you know?
1: mm-hmm. religion in the modern world is really very different from that you don't have to be a theist to be religious so buddhism in some forms is fairly non-theistic in other forms it's very similar to to what you would encounter with christianity or something like that um, but it, uh, primarily it's an orthopraxy it's a path of practice we have you know things that you follow whereas Christianity and some other, some other religions, or orthodoxy. Here's here's what you believe. It's still a religion. It's just a religion in a different way than a lot of, a lot of other religions are. So, you know, for me, I um I my first formal practice was in like 1988, uh, and. It sort of grew over time, you know. I would, I had read a lot. I tried to meditate on my own, stuff like that. And then you find community, and you get better, more, more formal instruction. And you know, at, at some point, I think I was at a Thai temple and mm-hmm. on a retreat, and they said, "Oh, it's time to go for refuge," and I was very happy to do that. Uh,
0: you know. So, was there a lot of Americans turning to Buddhism during the the? 60s and 70s where the bead tools and I Mahatma Gandhi was you know revolutionary too um because you know it's really interesting right when obviously you know you're a white man and when I think of also Harry Krishnas right I don't know if you've ever like I've never met anyone who is not white who's a Hare Krishna like yeah, every yeah. Hare Krishna I know of is white right so you know being in America and um was it hard for you to kind of, was, I don't like, so the foundations of Buddhism in America, was it Asians predominantly, or was it like, uh, <laughs> uh, American white people that took on this and then made it, made it the, like what I've seen in Europe with the Hare Krishnas, the Hare Krishna communities, literally just white people. Not that it matters, but obviously these are like Asian, Philosophies that have trans trans transpired into the West, so it's very right. interesting to see. You know, yeah. so did you ever feel like you might not be accepted into this community or something like that, or no? Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah, it, it makes a lot me? of sense. And, <laughs> and actually, it's no. It's a very good question, and, and the answer to your question really depends on where in the U.S. you are. You know, okay. if you're in California in an urban area. There are probably long-established Asian Buddhist communities that, over time, uh, you know, Americans have said, "Hey, there's that Buddhism thing. Let me go check that out." You know, and and so it kind of changes. So one of my teachers, so I'm all, I have dual ordination. i was a Zen monk, but before I was a Zen monk, I was a I was ordained as a Buddhist minister it, with a tradition that's related to something called Buddhist Churches of America and Shodo Shinshu, and you don't care about any of that, but but one. <laughs> But one of my teachers was the uh, who in that tradition was a, uh, the spiritual director of the Buddhist Churches of America, which was founded after the Second World War. And I mean, I'm sorry, not Buddhist Churches of America, but Buddhist Temple of Chicago. And his father uh, had been a, a, a Buddhist priest. And during the Second World War, the family was evacuated from California to uh, the Midwest to be put into basically what amounted to a concentration camp. And then when the war ended, a lot of Japanese people went to Chicago. And so he founded a Buddhist temple there. Well, if you go to Buddhist Temple of Chicago today, uh, you get about probably 50-50 Japanese descendants and convert Buddhist, you know, white guys like me. Um, in, you know, in Hawaii and California, you'll see Asian communities that have, you know, uh, started to take in a lot of Americans, white, English speaking Americans. A big thing about it has been language, you know. Mm-hmm. If you go to Chinatown in San Francisco, you might walk into a temple that was founded by Chinese people in the 19th century, and it still primarily caters to people who speak Chinese. And then you might find another one down the street who was found that was founded by Chinese people who still come there, but they also have English language instruction and that kind of thing. So that was sort of the case when I started investigating it. There were a few little groups started by people like me who had read some books and, you know, and said, well, let's start a group. But there were also some Asian communities that were getting visited by people who wanted to learn about Buddhism and said, Hey, let's do some stuff in English. So for these people who want to learn about the Dharma. So when I, uh, the first Asian community that I had any close relationship with was a Thai temple down, down by Disney world. And, um, if you went to a retreat, it was probably two thirds Thai people. And, but by the the time this was around 2000 or so, it was about probably a third, um, English speaking people. They had, they had had a translator who was really good and, you know, they could do good instruction for people in both languages. And so it expanded. So the, one of the places that I go now is a Vietnamese monastery. And, um, When I'm there in the speaker, most of the people who are there are, you know, Americans, white people, white guys. When the abbot is there, he's Vietnamese. Most of the people who come are Vietnamese. But, you know, we get along well. There's not a difficulty with acceptance, but there's language issues and cultural issues and that kind of thing that come up.
0: So I noticed that your name is Morris and uh, normally with other religions, right? When you turn, when you become that religion, you have to kind of change your name. Like if you convert to Islam, you have to take on a Muslim name if you convert to Christianity, right? So is this a practice that they don't share in Buddhism? So you obviously haven't changed your name or do you have also a name that you use?
1: So actually, you should see my Dharma name also. So I have, I have multiple, we call those Dharma names. Okay. So I have four of them. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, well. I well, do
0: remember well, all of them?
1: Well, fortunately, I don't have to use them all. So when I ordained in the, so I was, I, I was, Briefly a monk in the Thai order. So, when you're a monk in Thai Buddhism, you're just a monk. So, I was married and had a job and dogs and cars and mortgages and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the abbot said, Oh, you should ordain. And I said, Well, I, you know, I got all this stuff. And he goes, Well, just ordain for a little while. And so, so basically, I spent a vacation as a monk in the Thai order and I got the Dharma name Atadamo, which is a Pali word. Pali is an ancient Indian dialect that means self practicing. And I asked the abbot, why, 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 why that name? And he said, you've already ordained in your heart. That's what that meant. Oh. So when I started practicing with, um, in the Jodo Shinshu tradition, which I did, um, I was, I had become, been leading a group at a state correctional institution, prison, And I was kind of feeling the need to be able to do some things that ministers can do. So let people go for refuge who are, you know, incarcerated in a place. And, you know, I'm the only person they're seeing who's Buddhist, that kind of thing. Have confidential conversations. You know, ministers can do that. And so I was looking for a Buddhist chaplaincy program. And I found this Jodo Shinshu, uh, basically seminary program. Um, and I got the Dharma name Sekio, which means <clears throat> stone sun. Long story, would explain that. Um, I got Dharma transmission about seven years ago from the abbot of the Vietnamese monastery. Dharma transmission is when a Zen master says, you're a Zen master too. And, Congratulations. You know,
0: yeah, and
1: he gives you that. And so I got a Vietnamese Dharma name called Phat Phung yat which means dharma fragrance. Nice. And then when I ordained as a Soto monk, uh, really because I felt the need to be um, on a personal practice level to be a, a monastic again, uh, I got the Dharma name Doshin, which means faith in the way.
0: So you mentioned that you, you were married when you dis- were you married when you discovered that you wanted to take this seriously? Or did you get married after? Because when I think of monk, I I I think of somebody who devotes their life to practice, and by that they can't have a partner.
1: Yeah. So when well, when I was when I went into the Thai order, you know, I was married at the time, and basically I was, you know. you know, she was totally okay with it. And so I lived at the monastery during that time. And it was kind of interesting. She would come to visit me and bring me stuff and things like that. We weren't allowed to be alone together. You know, we couldn't sit close. It's it, And it's just strict orders for monks in the Thai order. They're, they're celibate and they take that very, very seriously. In Japanese Buddhism, uh, there's a long history of, Monks not taking all of the monastic precepts, so not taking the vow of celibacy and so on, and it has to do with a kind of complicated relationship between religion and the emperor in Japan. And so the emperor would say, "Monks have to marry," <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's that. So, um, so when I when I wanted to to, to do this practice on that sort of monastic practice on a deeper level um you know I, I could ordain in the in a Japanese order and I had relationships with people in this order and, and have a high value on the people who founded the lineage and all that stuff anyway um so I could ordain and and still be married
0: so so okay so that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions and isn't it that you know as an outsider I would assume that any form of monk whether it's christian or any religion basically you'd have to be celibate and devote your life to
1: spirituality yeah well yeah, yeah and and most of the time if you're looking at a buddhist monk you're looking at someone who's celibate the 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 exception being japanese orders and orders that descended from japanese buddhism so like there's some korean organizations that came from Japanese Soto Zen and stuff where they don't have to be celibate.
0: So, when I spoke to you on the weekend, you mentioned to me that not all Buddhists are uh, vegetarian. Some actually eat meat. And yeah. that's interesting because it's from my understanding, I thought that Hindus and Buddhists are strictly um, vegetarian and be- not vegan, but vegetarian, right? Yeah. So, so do it- you eat meat yourself. By
1: the way. Um, mainly not, but so so the Buddha had an evil cousin named Devadatta. Okay. And okay. tried to take over the Sangha, the the community. And and as part of all of this, he said to the Buddha, you know, we need to make the monks be vegetarian, like the Hindus, you know, because mm-hmm. this was India. And the Buddha thought about it, and he said, "No, you know, we we live on alms. We we live on what people give us, and we need to be easy to maintain."
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so he decided not to require that. There are orders that are pretty strictly vegetarian. A Vietnamese monastery that I go to, they if, if you have a wedding reception or something, they don't even allow you to serve meat there. They're they're very strictly vegetarian, not vegan, close to it. Um I don't
0: they eat beef? Because I know Hindus, they eat meat, but they don't eat beef. Even like some Sikhs, I believe like they don't eat beef. So is there like you know, something that they don't eat when it comes to meat?
1: Um yeah, so there's a list of animals that you can't eat. I don't remember what they all are. None of it's anything you'd ever want to eat anyway. So it's like you can't eat a tiger or a monkey or you know, so you know, but um but yeah, you know, in, in India, I mean there are in in and I'm not an expert on Hinduism by any means, but, you know, cattle are considered sacred. Mm. Goats, not so much, you know, and that kind of thing. So, But but in Buddhism, if, if it's a vegetarian order, mm-hmm. um, they generally don't eat any meat.
0: What is the longest period you've stayed in a monastery and what does a normal day in a monastery look like?
1: Um, a month or so. Uh, But on a normal day, you get up really early, uh, like 4.30, theoretically. Mm -hmm. It kind of depends on what's going on. But like if there's a retreat going on, you get up real early. You're expected to be in the meditation hall early. You'll meditate first um, and then you'll have breakfast. So like in a Theravada monastery where they practice very close to the way the Buddha taught. You know, you'll eat breakfast at seven and then you'll eat lunch. You have to finish lunch before noon and that's your last meal of the day. Um, Generally, on kind of a day to day basis, there's chanting and meditation in the morning and in the evening. Uh, During retreats, you know, there'll be more. Of that sort of thing, at the Vietnamese monastery during retreats, you know they they eat dinner that they, they're not following the the Theravada rule of not eating afternoon, uh, but it's usually a light meal, and you know there's all the stuff that's got to go into running a monastery. You know people are working in the gardens and people are doing the bookkeeping and you know all of those things that have to get done.
0: So meditation is something that I've been interested in doing but i cannot for the life of me not think
1: okay well good that means you're a human being and you're alive
0: (laughs) no but okay so what is the secret to meditation (laughs) there's the secret
1: is there's no secret you know it's meditation is training your mind so sometimes the mind is going to be restless sometimes it's going to be lethargic sometimes it's going to be anxious sometimes it's going to be clinging and desirous You know, of sensual things. What's on TV? What's for dinner tonight? You know, sometimes it's going to be doubtful. I'm not getting anything out of this. Right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So the, the practice is whatever your object of meditation is, just let go of that. Come back to your object of meditation. And in time, your mind will settle down. It become calmer, at least for a little while. And then it'll get bouncy again. That's okay. That's part of the practice. Meditation is not about having a special mental experience. It's about training your mind. So in the Buddhist path, you know, most people who've read anything about Buddhism know that there's, you know, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. The last three factors of the Eightfold Path are about meditation. So right effort, which means letting go of mental activities that lead to suffering and stress and developing mental characteristics and activities that lead to freedom and happiness. Uh, right mindfulness, which means being aware of what the mind is doing and paying attention skillfully. And then right concentration, which means keeping your mind set where you want it to go. So our experience of life and whether it's good or bad has actually relatively little to do with our circumstances has a great deal to do with how we use our attention and so meditation at its at its most fundamental is learning to use the attention skillfully and so that you'll do the thing engage your mind with your circumstances and with what comes into your awareness in a way that doesn't create stress and that creates greater freedom and happiness.
0: In a so world that, right now where everyone is so stressed, I think it's something that everyone should apply, but it's easier said than done. And I know, I'm not sure why.
1: well, because we find it very easy to find other things to do. <laughs> you know, we, we train ourselves that way. The mind, you know, the, the Buddha used the, the simile of, the, of a monkey at the end of a lead, you know, the monkey mind. You know, if, if you keep pulling the monkey back or a puppy, you know, puppy mind is a good example, too. If you keep pulling it back and saying settle down, eventually, will. you know, you'll train it. Uh, but it takes some effort to get there. And a lot of people come to meditation thinking somebody's going to give me some secret technique that's going to make me all of a sudden happy and peaceful. Well, the secret technique is you have to train your mind and and your mind becomes less reactive. You become better able to decide what you're going to react to, what you're going to create stress around. You learn that, you know, everything that comes up doesn't need to be pushed away or clung to. You don't need, you know, things can come up. You don't need to add a storyline to them or anything like that. And so, um, you know, that's that's where the peace comes from, really is in becoming spiritually more resilient, which comes from being aware of how you're creating suffering or how you're creating happiness.
0: Do Buddhists believe in destiny or do they believe in creating your outcome? <laughs>
1: So that's kind of an interesting question. It kind of depends on how you look at the at karma. Uh, the short answer to your question is no, we don't believe in destiny. The long answer to your question is a little bit more complicated than that, right? Do they believe so, in
0: karma, then.
1: Yeah, but it's a little different than the way like uh, Hindus believe in karma. A little different. So the law of karma means action. That's all it means. Karma is action. And if you, the law of karma is, if you do a good thing, you get a good result. If you do a bad thing, you get a bad result. So to some extent, where we are, who we are, all that is, um, is a result of what we have done in the past. So I can't decide, you know, that I'm going to be six and a half feet tall instead of five foot 11 or whatever tomorrow, because, you know, I'm my car, things that have occurred in the past have brought me to this point in a certain shape and size, you know? Um, but what I do now will largely shape my experience tomorrow. So in kind of a, a pre-Buddhist classical sense of the word, a lot of the time car- karma was used. The idea of karma was used, almost as a, uh, as a synonym for destiny. You know, if you got killed, if you walked outside and a plane crashed on you, it was your, it was your karma that caused that to happen. And, but in, with Buddhism, it's like, well, you, you know, we have past karma, present karma, and future karma, and they're interrelated. But we can, to a large extent, determine where we end up tomorrow again understanding that where we are today is a function of where we were yesterday
0: do you do they believe in past lives and Nirvana is 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 Hinduism does it apply in Buddhism as well
1: yeah so <laughs> so yeah again there's a little subtle difference so if you if you read about sort of the Hindu view of of reincarnation, there's the idea that there's a soul, and that it sort of is a permanent thing that's separate and discrete from other things, and that that soul moves from form to form the way a caterpillar crawls from leaf to leaf. For mm. example, in Buddhism, it's a little different. We don't see that that there's something that sort of encapsulates our the essence of me. There's no self as such doesn't mean there's no self. It means there's no self that's that we can look at and go, okay, this is it. This is it right here. I got it right here in my hands. It's really a process. Everything is always changing. So we're more like a wave moving through the, through the ocean than we are like a chunk of ice floating in glass. Okay. And so, the causes and conditions that created this um, will eventually come to an end, but the causes and conditions that this creates will lead to another form at some point. So now it's more like uh, the flame from a candle lighting the flame on another candle. I know that's confusing, but (laughs) that's that's the closest simile, and it's a subtle difference. The main thing about that being, so all of these teachings are not really to be, you know, pondered and argued. The Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering. He said, what can can we do that will end suffering? Mm -hmm. And so when we look at self and the idea of a self, people tend to find one or two things and go, oh, that's me. Mm -hmm. And then if they find one or two things they like, wow, me is really good they find one or two things they don't like, oh, me is really bad. <laughs> right. Well, the reality is me is doesn't exist hardly. You know, it's, it's boundaryless. And so when we realize that, you know, we can start to experience not just the wave, but the ocean. You know, we experience ourselves in connection to everything else. And so that's one of the, uh, one of the ideas of enlightenment is that we glimpse that which is beyond birth and death. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we see, we're a wave, but we see that we're part of the ocean. Okay. The word Nirvana has an interesting etymology. So it basically means extinguishing or, or unbinding. So the idea was that in, in India, you know, that fire was seen to be bound to its fuel and to have kind of an agitated, uncomfortable relationship with its fuel. Well, what happens to the fire when the fuel all burns away? It's not there anymore. There's nothing to fuel it. And so it is unbound from the fuel. So nirvana means that you're not fueling the cycle of coming and going anymore. So you're not fueling suffering anymore. So you're freed from all of that. So it's not a place. Where where does the fire go when it goes out? it's just gone right it doesn't mean that there's no heat it doesn't mean that you know the causes and conditions are, have gone but but the fire is extinguished so in classical Buddhism when the Buddha was teaching you know the objective of Buddhism was to be no freed of all the fuel you know there are no more fetters tying you to coming and going and so you're freed of the cycle of rebirth and that's Nirvana so remember I said that at some point as Buddhism encountered other cultures that somebody said we need a bigger car. We need a vehicle that's big enough for everybody to fit into. Not everybody can do that. What, what can we do? Well, we can move closer to that. We can become, we can live more enlightened lives. And by living a more enlightened life, then we share the results of our practices with practice with everyone else. And so there are, develops this whole new objective which is to we take this vow to liberate all beings and so nirvana then is not really all that relevant anymore yes we we become freer of suffering but we don't just disappear we're around to help each other so uh you know, you'll find that there's this word bodhisattva means Buddha to be. These are people who are almost free, who are free to the point that they're they don't come back to this earth and suffer, but they're here to help us. And so that's kind of what we want to do. So we take the next step after the precepts. If you're a Mahayana Buddhist is to take a vow to do that. So we say, you know, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to free them. And so that that sort of determines where you're going after this life because you've taken that vow that you're going to continue to move toward that sort of awakening for the benefit of everyone.
0: So when you're free, you're free from highs and lows. So not only from getting really happy, but then also the sadness, which no one really wants, right? Um, Which kind of is similar to being stoic, as in like, Nothing affects me, you know what I mean. But
1: I know what I you mean, know, but, right? But, but not really. So the thing is, we we want to live authentic lives, right? Meaning that we, we can experience pleasure and pain. We just don't see it as permanent and enduring, and we don't identify with it. So in meditation, you know, you can get really amazing pleasant states. But you also understand that when the bell rings and you get up, that's going to be gone. There's always flowers on a Buddhist altar. Flowers are a wonderful uh, representation of the fact that there's a lot of beauty in the world and it doesn't last forever. But that's okay. We can appreciate this moment. And so the, the practice, so the practice works on multiple levels. One is, you know, we talked about rebirth and freedom and bodhisattvas and nirvana, but the, the functions, the activities that bring us back to another life bring us back to suffering tomorrow too or to happiness tomorrow in this life. So when you learn that it's your mind's engagement with what arises, that leads to suffering or to happiness, then you can direct that more carefully and you experience less stress. When bad things happen, are you still going to be unhappy? Yeah. You know, if I stub my toe, I still cuss because it hurts. You know, it's my karma to be born in a, you know, in a form with stubbable toes and experience pain. But, you know, I don't, go, ah, you know, myself is stupid for stubbing my toe and then beat up on myself for the next five hours for for being stupid enough to stub my toe or something like that. You know, I recognize, okay, those things happen. Let's move on. And one of my favorite poems from uh, Japanese Buddhism, there was a a poet named Isa who had lost uh, children.
0: And, Isa, that's Jesus, Jesus in Islam
1: as well. Did you know yeah. that? Yeah, this is spelled I-S-S-A is the way it's transliterated. I don't know if it's the same. But that, but anyway, he, he was a well-known poet, and he had lost a child. And he said, and he wrote a poem says, this dewdrop world is a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet. In other words, we know that what we see here has no more substance than a drop of dew. And yet, you know, it, it touches our heart when something like that happens. And when, with this practice, we, we can experience that more authentically because we know that it's, you know, that bad things happen. We accept, you know, the first truth is if you're born, there's going to be difficulties, but there's also going to be joys. And so, uh, you know, we get to determine to a large degree how we react to what comes up. But we want to react in a way that that is real and genuine and authentic.
0: How do you reach a point where you, you are free, you're truly free? Like the people that you, you mentioned, is that like, meditation I know (laughs) that's probably a silly question but how I mean I would assume that is the best way for a human to live to be free because then you can set on your path and you can execute whatever you need to do and like all the trials and tribulations that will come along your way you are free and you can just run the marathon (laughs)
1: again within the constraints of who you are you know and and this is the thing that happens a lot of times is people say have an issue with anger for example well you know anger is one of the three poisons in buddhism when we talk about how we don't want to nurture those but they still arise you know again you know form is not self this is constantly changing i don't do anything to get it i can't determine that what it's going to be like tomorrow i can have certain influence over it but you know Only so much. The same thing with feeling, perception, mental formations, you know, thoughts, cognitions, and awareness. I can't, I have no control over those, right? I can't sit down and think, okay, I'm going to meditate now. I'm not going to have a single thought, you know, because thoughts arise. They're like what a famous Japanese Zen master called them, secretions of the mind. You know, they come up, but I can decide what to do with them when they come up, Right. And so that's where the freedom comes from—is developing this this ability, which is a practice, to react to what arises in a way that again uses your attention skillfully. So, um, and and you're never. So again, somebody will say, "Well, but I'm a Buddhist now. Why am I still getting angry?" Well, because, you're, <laughs> because you're also still a human being. Yeah. Right. So, but now that you're Now that you're practicing it, you know, you don't have to get as hooked by your anger. And that's the thing. You know, if these things will arise, you can be selective about what you let hook you.
0: You look free. Pardon? You look free from tension. (sighs) Yeah, you know, generally. I've been around. I I would like to think that I'm a good people's person. And I can look at somebody and I can see like either like anger or somebody who's been through a lot. Like you can see it in your face, but you look like inclined. You look clear from any sort of toxic energy. Like your eyes are like empty. as in like, in a good way. Like, I don't know how to explain it, but seriously, you look at peace. That's the right word. You look at peace. And in the West, it it seems like something really hard because Western, it's so weird because people in the East, they, they want to move to the West. They want this Western lifestyle, but you're, you're not, it's really hard to be at peace. I would like to think so. I could be wrong, but to be at peace living in the West. But you look, you look, you look, you look Zen. That is, And you are a Zen master, so no, no surprise here.
1: well and it's a practice and i have my moments you know i promise you that but you know yeah i mean part of the reason why i started on this path was because i had issues you know i mean my father was a violent alcoholic you know and i grew up with that you know and i grew up in in a place where people who were different were not you know received all that well and, and that kind of stuff so you know it's it's we all have those things. And so it's it's how you work with it. What do you do with it? And us, my wife and I were, uh, we were going to uh, dinner down in Orlando and uh, we we're on our way down there. And it was this time of year where some Buddhists will take some extra vows, you know, that kind of work on their spiritual practice a little bit more diligently for this period of time and she said you know i think i'm going to work on my language and i said what do you mean she goes i cuss like a longshoreman sometimes and i said oh you know what i've been a little bit sloppy about that myself i'll I'll work on that with you and so um we went to lunch at this restaurant and, and um we were parked on a fairly busy road parallel park and so i got ready to the the lane next to me that i was going to pull out into was clear until I started to pull out, and then some guy come, came over into that lane, cut me off as I was pulling out, and I let loose a string of expletives, <laughs> you know, and then I and then I laughed because you know a lot of that kind of stuff goes right goes past the the uh, the executive function and straight to like the simpler form part of your brain, you know, and, and reacts very quickly, but you know those things come up and then you you don't take them seriously and you know. I laughed at me instead of cussing at the driver for the next 30 minutes or whatever, you know, that's all.
0: Do Buddhists or Buddhism um, believe in forgiveness? Cause I know you work closely with prisons and prisoners or not necessarily work, but talk to prisoners, right? Cause um, that's what you do. And, uh, you know, and they might be, have done some really, really bad things, you know, and then, like I know, a lot of the religions believe in redemption, and does does that apply in Buddhism? And what what inspired you to to take on this heavy task to take on people's stories that are very painful? Then you have to be truly free, because if you were listening to something like that, you you know it would really affect you if you weren't free and yeah. so you have to or you're a very strong person because i can't even imagine some of the things that you hear right and you you work it's not it's not work is it and you help people is it what do you call it you talk to people <laughs>
1: yeah well what i do is i i go in there to the to the chapel and we have certain we have a service you know, we mm-hmm. do we do some chanting, we do some meditation and then I give a talk, you know, and then I listen to them, they ask them questions or whatever, whatever needs to be dealt with. So and and sometimes I'll do a spiritual advisor visit. That's where one of them will say, hey, I want to talk to you alone. And will you come in and talk with me? That, that doesn't happen too often, but it's every now and then. So it happened. This is like 2006. Five, I guess. Um, I was leading a, a small this small group in the land where I live, and and there were these three guys at the state prison who were identifying as Buddhist, and they wanted to meet in the chapel, and the chaplain wouldn't let them meet without a volunteer present, and so one of them had gone to the Unitarian minister there who was coming in, said, "Hey, do you know any Buddhists?" And so this long string of emails had gone around the world and finally ended up with me. And so I said, well, you know, I was working as a freelance writer at the time. So I, I had the flexibility and I said, yeah, well, let me go check it out, you know? And so, uh, so I went and it was January, 2006 when I went in the first time and I've been, except for during periods during COVID where the whole price was locked down. I've gone in there basically once a week ever since. Uh, I don't really even ask them why they're there. I can look them up uh, on the Department of Corrections database if I want to, and I can see what kind of charges there are. And I did that at first for a while, I thought it would help me. And, um, and I went in speaking of forgiveness, I went in and talked to the chaplain there, who was this real the kind of Christian guy you, you talked about, you know, the hardcore guys that you mentioned earlier on, he's one of those. In fact, he's told me you guys are wrong, but you're, you know, your group is pretty good. I appreciate what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I went in and I said, you know, I made the mistake of looking up some of these guys and I said, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a challenge. And he goes, he said, yeah, I said, you know, when I was when, so he had actually been in prison himself, He had been a cop and then gone to prison for something. I don't remember what. And then when he got out, he decided to be a chaplain, prison chaplain. He said, yeah. I said, when I was first coming in, he said, I would know what some of these guys were in here for. And he said, I'd had trouble with it. He said, "And, and God told me that their sin wasn't any worse than my sin. And my sin wasn't any better than their sin. You know, and so this is what compassion is. You know, we talk a lot about compassion in Buddhism. It's recognizing suffering and recognizing our own suffering in others and the suffering of others in us. And so, you know, I thank goodness I, I have not done anything bad enough to get me locked up. But, you know, if my karma had been like their karma, you know, I might be in there, too. And And I have certainly not been perfect in my life. You know, so uh, every once in a while, one of them will want to talk to me about what they did in the past. And I just try to help them find a way to to work with that, you know, to work with self-acceptance. And, you know, not, uh, you know, there's there's healthy remorse. You know, there's I don't want to do this again. I'm sorry I did this. Let me not do this again. And then there's beating up on yourself, you know. And and that's not healthy. So, you know, I try to... And and a lot of the people that I work with are not ever going to get out. And so trying to get them to help them accept that, you know, and and live better lives where they can be, you know, that sort of thing, uh, is a big part of what I do.
0: What is the biggest lesson you've taken from being around people who are serving life in prison And then you have to come in with a positive outlook, right? Because that's where they're going to spend the rest of their life. And you can't make them feel bad about that because you're not a police officer. You're not the law. You know, so that must be quite a challenge in itself. You know, what what I'm sure and lessons that you've learned as well, being in that environment, what is the biggest takeaway that you've got? I would be terrified to go to a prison,
1: Well, I was, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it was pretty intimidating the first time I went in. Uh, It's not so, you know, it's a large compound. It's not a, it's a maximum security prison, but it's not like you'd see, you know, you go in and, uh, well, actually it is, you go in through big, heavy clanging metal gates, but, but then you're in this thing that looks kind of like a 1960s era community college except there's razor wire on the fence you know um and you know i i have only been in some a couple of dorms and it's been a while and they they just kind of look like dorms you know they don't look like prison cells out of the movie and that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, it's a little intimidating. You know, the biggest thing that I get out of it is that freedom doesn't have anything to do with where you are. You know, you can be, uh, you know, out on the street and be very much a, a victim of your own imprisonment, you know, and you can be behind bars and be freer than most of the people that you meet on the street. So, you know, I do when i leave there on tuesday afternoon um, you know i i walk out the gates and um, i generally walking toward my car. Go, i'm not in there <laughs> you know i'm free now what does it mean to be really free you know and how do i take that i mean i really think probably of all the spiritual practices that i've done going into a prison is probably the most beneficial in terms of my own spiritual growth because, um, you know, it tests you any number of ways. I, so I I used to be a real, what we'd call a type A personality. You know, I was kind of impatient. I was always anxious to get through this thing so that I could go do the next thing and be anxious to get through that, you know. And one of the things about my practice that has, that I really appreciate is that it helped me kind of be where I am and be okay with that. And I was leaving the the prison one day, and somebody, the, whoever was in the guard booth, was like absolutely, completely not interested in my presence. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I felt the little, you know, the irritation rising up, and I suddenly realized it would do me absolutely no good whatsoever to get upset. So why do it? You mm. know.
0: That's discipline, though. Mm -hmm. you have to reach that's discipline you have to reach a a a place where you can discipline yourself i think a large portion of buddhism is discipline right yeah
1: yeah
0: you mentioned about you could live outside and be in a mental prison and i was walking outside and i saw this like homeless person or unhoused person and they have no one speaking to them and they're there in their own heads for 12 hours a day. And I was thinking, wow, like, this is almost like being in a prison without being in a prison. I don't even know which is, because in a prison you might have, you might gain friendships. And we've seen like some friendships come out of people in, in prison or asylums. And yeah, so when you said that, I was like, wow, I, I literally, I was watching someone and it looked like they were in a mental prison.
1: Well, and think about all the people who are imprisoned by their greed, you know, who's or by their anger, their hatred, by their ignorance, you know, and, and who are clinging to those things, you know. So one of the things about the practice is that you learn... Uh, that you can give up things that you think you're really attached to in order to get a greater something better. As a teacher that I I like a lot, who calls it trading candy for gold. You know, like I like candy, but I like gold better. <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I could give up these things that I think I need um, in order to have something that's actually over the long term better it's kind of like something like quitting smoking, you know, you know, that cigarette's going to feel really good, but also over the long term, you know, it's going to lead to a lot of suffering and a lot of our, what we do in life is very similar to that. You know, do we need to be hung up on the relationships we're hung up on? Do we, you know, how much money do we really need? How much status do we need? All those kinds of things. And if we, decide you know that we can be free of some of those things well then we can go out with after what's really important and I'm not gonna tell you what that is because everybody has to find that for themselves you know but you can live on purpose instead of being controlled by your feelings and your prejudices and you know all all of those kinds of things
0: how do you advise the prisoners and other people but I would say the prisoners because they must have severe trauma right? And so how do you, how do you advise them, as you mentioned, like, you can't change the past now. So to to let go of everything that you have done, even though it was wrong, you need to, you know, you need to let go of that tension, because you're making yourself sick.
1: Well, I mean, you just said it, you know, I advise them the same way I would advise you or one of the students at school or whatever, you know, don't, I mean, a lot of, like a lot of college students, come in with serious perfectionism. Oh my God, I can't fail. If I fail, it'll see into the world. Well, actually the end of the world is you walking around thinking you can't fail. You know, that's what creates the stress. People fail all the time. People do it on purpose. You know, I mean, <laughs> creative people, it's like, okay, well let me try this and see if that works. And, and if it's not, let me get to failure really fast, you know, so that I can go into something else, you know, and that kind of thing. You know, we can, we don't need to, uh, identify our pain as our pain. It's simply a phenomenon that has arisen. And then we can decide, okay, what what do we want to do now? So, uh, you know, I've had people come up and go, I'm getting out of here and, Mm -hmm. you know, next month. What do I do to make sure I don't come back? You know, I've gotten out before and I end up back in. What do I do? Well, for one thing, Are you different now than you were last time? You know, have you learned something? Yeah. Well, what makes you think you'd be back here then? You know, before all you thought, you know, life was worth was, you know, whatever drug you happened to be strung out on. And now you know better. Now you know what the gold is. You don't need the candy anymore, right? And so, you know, you just keep reminding yourself that.
0: Wow. I think you're very strong. I know, I know that a lot of it is to do with your spirituality, but you know, that must be a very, very, first of all, empowering because you must get like self-fulfillment, helping people who, who are in not, I wouldn't say the worst circumstances, but kind of, you know, to some degree, I guess in the West, it could be you know, but if it's self-inflicted, right? Do you ever feel like, well, or are you, because of your belief, you're not allowed to think, well, you kind of deserve being here. Like say you come across somebody who, and I know you said you don't look into their stories now, but like, sometimes you can look at someone and be like, I know that you're a murderer. Like you look like a killer.
1: So I try not to look at them that way, but, you know, I've had some say, you know, I'm where I belong. I deserve to be here, you know, and and that's a real first step, you know, the ones that I have trouble with are the ones that that can't say that the ones who will, they'll be trying to talk to me and they'll be telling me a, a million excuses why it's not their fault that they're there. And those are the ones that are a challenge really, you know, fortunately there's not too many of those. Most of them, by the time they come to a Buddhist service you know and listen to a few dharma talks and stuff like that they start to get this self-acceptance means accepting uh, you know who you are where you are and it's it's you know there's a uh, humility component of it you know being able to recognize that i'm not the only important thing in the world Um, Mm. you know and and in order to be able to to change I have to see myself clearly and so you know I can't change my circumstances if I'm in a prison uh, Mm. but I can change myself and I can be a freer person than I was when I wasn't in prison so Mm. you know and and they don't all get it obviously but some do it's kind of you know it's, it's real interesting the way some of them change we have a guy in there who has actually been a Zen monk longer than I have for a long time. He's, uh, he, he's in for armed robbery. I don't think he was charged with a murder, but he's doing life without parole. So I'm sure somebody was killed and he was part of that. Um, and uh, like 20 years ago, there was a Buddhist group that started in the facility where he was at the time. And, um, and he really took to it. And, you know, and he ended up ordaining. Uh, and, uh, you know, and he'll talk about the lives he's seen changed. And that's what, and that's why he does this, you know, he's, he shows up every time, you know, and, and that's why, because he's seen lives improved in significant ways because of practicing the Dharma.
0: It's powerful, very powerful. Do you, can you have a preference? Do you work, Do you like working? I like. I don't like saying the term work because it isn't work. It's like service. You're doing good. I don't know.
1: It's you know. It's it's it takes effort. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I understand that. Um, with with college kids or like university in in Europe. Um, or do you pro? Do you feel more? Can you say like what you get out of it? we can't think of us because that's greedy yeah. i get yeah. that but what do you enjoy more than are you allowed to enjoy things
1: <laughs> yeah like i said you know i'm not finished life i mean you experience pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and all of those things you know i'm not shut off to any of things. i just don't attach to it i don't expect it to be permanent forever mm. you know um the the interest so the the university thing I've been a university chaplain for five years as of this as of last month, and I got into that because the previous chaplain was very sick, and when he went into hospice, uh, they asked him, "Do you want to see one of our chaplains and he was had been a Baptist minister all his life, and um he said, no, um because I know every cliche every chaplain ever said, I'd like to hear something I haven't heard before will you?" will you ask Boris if he'll come visit me? And so, I, and I'd met him at, the, at school, you know, I'd come in to give talks at events and stuff like that. We'd had lunch together once, but I was surprised, you know, and and so I ended up doing his end of life uh, care counseling. Uh, anyway, and so that got me on this university's radar. So when they got ready to replace him, you know, they took three of us on part time, a Buddhist, a Baptist, and an African Methodist Episcopal. I'm the only one right now. When COVID happened, the others um, had, you know, other, other things, family obligations and stuff like that, that made it difficult for them to continue. So I'm it now. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting challenge because as chaplains, Uh, your job as a chaplain, your job is not to proselytize. You know, people come in to talk to me and say, I'm dealing with a crisis, or I feel like I should have some sort of a spiritual life or whatever. What should I do? Well, 40 years ago, you know, I'd have been a Baptist probably. And I would have said, well, okay, here's the Bible. Let's pray on it. And now, you know, because that's what you did these days. Uh, you know, like 40% of American college students are what we classify as nuns. They're the people who, when they take the Pew uh, Religious Landscape Survey, when it says what what religion do you identify with, they check none.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So they're either atheist, agnostic, spiritual, but not religious, or they just don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. And so what we, and then we're also in a diverse community. So they might also be, uh, you know, any number of other faith traditions. And I try to treat them all equally and, and meet them where they stand. And this is, I think, a very common thing with chaplains today, because chaplains all over the world are dealing with the same situation. Uh, there was actually a, a, a an international chaplains conference that was supposed to be in Sheffield that I was chapel in england or
0: yeah. okay
1: yeah but it ended up being remote because it was you know covid and so I, I was in these zoom rooms with people chaplains from all over the world and they were all saying essentially very similar things you know the job is to try to meet them where they are and and help them find their path without saying you know here's your path you follow this mm. And there was a Muslim chaplain who said something really interesting. And he was talking specifically about Muslim chaplaincy, but he said, you know, it used to be a Muslim chaplain was like the captain of a ship. You know, you, you dealt with the Muslim students and you said, OK, here's where we're going. He said, now we're a lot more like a slightly more experienced fellow passenger. And so that's that's how I see the, uni- the university students is, OK, we're, we're on this together where do you want to go? How do we get there?
0: Mm. And,
1: and sometimes they develop an interest in Buddhism. Sometimes I, they, I end up, you know, they become involved in one of the student religious organizations, you know, um, and that's okay. It's really helping you, helping you find how to navigate spirituality. You said something earlier about how it's impossible to not don't remember how you put it something like it's impossible to not go to church or something like that you know the reality is we all live a spiritual life it's not to
0: follow a religion like you have to follow something at least yeah
1: well and you know there's a lot of people who say i don't follow any religion but you're living a spiritual life so if there's not a structured religious element to it what is there and you know What else is there? There's materialism, you know. There's hate. There's you know, I political ideologies. There's all kinds of crap you could get. You you could (laughs) connect to, you know. Sports teams, you know, football, right? Right? You know, that sort of stuff. So we try to say, okay, so what's a healthy spirituality? What's going to make you more spiritually resilient? What's going to What's going to lead to long-term happiness you know those kinds of things what's going to give you meaning and purpose in your life and that's what all religions are about really is meaning and purpose and living a good you know a, a life that's where of integrity where your your values and your actions are in alignment you know and those kinds of things and you don't have to be any particular religion to talk about that
0: I think what you just said is really powerful is that oh that the guy That said, we're in the ship because I'm sure a lot of people come to you for answers, you know, like you must have the answer to life because you must, because you're a monk and monks should know everything, right? And so you need to tell me how I should live my life, you know, and then you're in that position. Like, what do you do?
1: Well, you know, so if, if somebody comes to me because I'm a Zen monk and wants me to tell them about that, I tell them about that. But I don't tell them. So this is what you got to do, because mm-hmm. it's sort of built into Buddhism that you don't do that. OK. You know, it's really about. So, you know, a, a, a teacher in another tradition, in a Whatever, you know, Abrahamic tradition you choose or whatever, you know, you come and you say, OK, well, here's here's what you should believe. You know, a teacher in a Buddhist tradition is go, okay. well, I've had some I've got some realization. Let me tell you how I got that. Mm. So you can do that, too. And, you know, and if that doesn't work for you, well, there's some other things we can try instead, you know. And so, uh, you know, I'll teach you what the practice is, but I don't teach you what the outcome is. You find that yourself. And that's that's a big difference. That's Again, that's one of the things I like about Buddhism no nobody should be telling you what to believe. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I'll just tell you what what to try. We have this concept called Ehipassiko, inviting to see for themselves. So, you know, I can be on the deck of the ship with you and go, that looks pretty good over there. You know, <laughs> what do you think about going there? You know, and, and if you like the way that looks, well, you can go there too.
0: Do Buddhists believe in life outside of this planet? Or is it just
1: here? Um, you know, it's, it's it's not something that I would really get caught up in, probably. But there there are scriptures like the Lotus Sutra, which is a very important Buddhist scripture, where it talks about Buddhas, countless Buddhas from countless other worlds. The number of worlds is there, universes. You know, as numerous as the sands of the. Angie's you know that sort of thing so what does that mean well it means that at some point in the last couple thousand years somebody thought you know there's probably worlds besides this one you know but do I find that particularly useful in a in a kind of a cosmic sense, in a sort of poetic sense? Yeah, but in terms of, am I going to argue about whether there's little green men from outer space or what's what you'd find at Roswell or whatever? Right. I was
0: going to say, how does yeah. that work with your American culture? You're in Florida. Yeah. There's a lot of sightings. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, you know, where I grew up in Lubbock, Texas, right after I left, there was a bunch of like these uh, sightings of flying saucers. They called them the Lubbock lights. If you Google it, you'll find the Lubbock lights. And, you know, I wasn't there at the time, so I missed the flying saucers. Maybe I'd feel differently if I had been there, but it was after I left, so.
0: Wow. Well, Morris, I want to say thank you so much for coming on here. You know, since I was 15 years old and I read a bit about Buddhism, I have been wanting to speak to a monk and so it is like I feel like crying because it's something that I wanted to do for a long time and had no idea how to do it and you know what the universe does work in a weird way and I'm I'm like wow I can't believe it like seriously it has been so incredible to talk to you and everything that you're doing is so inspiring especially because I can relate to you because it's like we're westerners and then we've found eastern philosophy not as in growing up in it you know what i mean yeah, and so yeah. um where can we find you if somebody wanted to do you have social media
1: yeah so um i have a couple of podcasts uh the the talks that i give on sunday mornings when we started meeting in person again i started recording them and putting them up as a podcast called the adventures of saraputa and Mogolana. uh you can just find it on spotify just go, just look for my name maurice sullivan and it'll come up and then i have another one called holding up the heavens which is a little newer explores spirituality more generally it's not as as specifically buddhist um, but it's spirituality and music so if you're listening to it on on a premium Spotify account you get the complete songs too And its I do it mostly because it's fun I like music I like spirituality it's a way to explore yeah. that uh, also Volusia Buddhist Fellowship is my organization here in Deland we have a YouTube channel so our Wednesday night services are live streamed and you, and you can watch those uh, and you know if you go to VolusiaBuddhist.org you can subscribe to email notices and that'll tell you what's going on so, update you.
0: Wow. That's incredible. I wish you all the best. I know you're well, going to you. do well anyways, but yeah, it was really an honor. Oh my God. I'm like, wow. <laughs> blown <laughs> away. Definitely. Thank you. I wish you have a you're great welcome. day. And you're great welcome.
1: Week. Enjoy the conversation. Let me know you're if awesome. I can help you with your practice. You know, that's what I do.
0: Do you do online? I was going to ask, do you do online I wouldn't say classes because it's not a class, is it? But do you do online meetups or like Zoom meetups? Because it's something that I would definitely love to do. Um, yeah. Do you, I have a pen and paper <laughs> right here yeah. to write down all the details? Do you do, or do yeah, I go so- to the website?
1: Well, so first of all, you know where to email me, so you yeah. can do that anytime. Yeah. Uh, if you go to VolusiaBuddhist.org, you can subscribe to email notices about what's going on. I do have a, a Thursday night Zoom meeting mm-hmm. uh, that's a Dharma study group, so we take a We take a sutra. Sutra is the Buddhist word for scripture, and we kind of unpack them over a period of time. Uh, Those are pretty fun, so you can do that. And you know, you can email me from the website if somebody wants a one-on-one conversation. We can do that on Zoom or
0: whatever. What time is your class on Thursday?
1: It's six p.m. New York time.
0: Okay. Yeah, sounds good. I think I'll be able to. So if I'm joining now, is it? An issue because maybe you start, is it like academics where like you can't join yeah. after you know yeah. come okay. in
1: anytime. So and what we'll do, so we're actually wrapping up one thing called the platform sutra this Thursday, and then we'll start something fresh. I'm not sure nice. what. I don't remember. We're looking at a couple of different things trying to decide which. But we, you know, we, we change every month or two depending on how long the pieces that we're looking at. But anybody can come in anytime. you know, you can, uh, if you, you get the email notices, it'll tell you what to read. We're all doing stuff that's all online, mm-hmm. so you don't have to pay for it. It's P PDF. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, join us. It'd be fun to have I'm you.
0: going to, absolutely. It's something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And so I'm I'm very excited. Literally, I'm emotional because it's like, wow, like I've wanted to do this since I was 15 years old, but I didn't pursue it. And for no reason, particularly. And now it's like, it's here. Like, I don't know if you believe in like destiny, you know, it's uh, definitely, whoa, <laughs> it's like <laughs> spooky. But yeah, thank you so much, Morris. You're it's welcome. been an honor to speak to you, honestly. Um, and I I look forward to joining your classes.
1: All right. Look forward to seeing you again.
0: Awesome.
1: All right. Take care.
0: Can we do this? How do you say bye?
1: Like this. You just, okay. Just there's bye. no spiritual. Okay. Nah. There's not really anything to say. Just <laughs> say, just say goodbye. Just right, do awesome. this and say goodbye. Awesome. <laughs> all right. Take care. Take care. Hey, yo. Check it out, it's the kid. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Vocal Minds with Sophia. Sophia. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Google Play, Amazon Music, and now on iTunes, all right? Follow her on both Instagram and Twitter under Vocal Mind Sophia. And don't forget to tell a friend about the podcast. Matter of fact, tell all your friends about the podcast. What are you waiting for? Honestly, remember you want to treat yourself, not Cheat yourself.